Good morning. That's a lot better. That's a lot better. I'm glad that all of you are here and awake. I know you're looking a little groggy. I know that that hour uh, you didn't you didn't go to bed hour. How many of you went to bed an hour earlier? Okay, five percent. So the rest of you, I know I'm going to have to get really into it to keep you welcome with me this morning. But uh, I am glad that you're here and you brought your Bibles with you. And I hope that you have. Please take them out. Take your phones out or your tablets out if you've got them. If you don't have that, then there should be a Bible in front of you somewhere. Get that Bible and let's turn to the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter. John chapter 14. That's about three-fourths of the way over in the New Testament. It's the fourth Gospel uh, that you'll come to. And we, this morning we are going to continue our series entitled Follow Me. We've been on this journey for a while together, uh, examining the various passages in the New Testament in which Jesus utters those words, follow me. And in our journey thus far, we've, we've been able to examine the call itself that Jesus issues, the call to follow me. We've been able to look at what the demands or the costs that we incur when we step out in faith and follow Jesus. We, we looked at those. And then in the last week, we looked at for the very first time, what, what are some of the rewards that we might be able to anticipate or expect based upon God's word for those of us that do follow Jesus? And today, I want us to consider that same subject again. I want us to consider the rewards of following Jesus. And in the second part, I want us to look at what for many of us will be very, very familiar from Scripture. In fact, I would not be surprised if many of us have not committed these verses to memory uh, from, from childhood on. Uh, they're words that, that we know very, very well. These are words that also we hear very often, but oftentimes we'll hear these words read at funerals or other times when it appears as though the world is, is crashing around us. We will hear these words from John 14 read for us. And here's what I know. I know that in a room this size, there are many of you who can identify with that feeling. If you're honest, you can, you can, you can understand what it means to be struggling with what a troubled heart is. You know what it's like to, to feel as though the world is, has crashed or, or is in the process of crashing in around you. Maybe you're upset by a myriad of things. Maybe it's your health or it could be your finances. It's possible that it could be your children or it could be your parents. It could be a relationship that, that is dogging you and creating problems for you. For others, it could be the economy, what you're troubled about. Maybe it's our country. Where it's headed. For some, be this coronavirus that's out there. We don't know when it's going to get here. We're worried about it. We're troubled. Like it or not, here's what I want you to know. Life is filled with trouble. Um, life is filled with disappointments. Life is filled with, with things that scare us. With things that come into our lives that are beyond our control. Threaten us and threaten our peace, threaten our security. And I want you to know that there's not one of us in this room that are immune from that. Not even believers. And yet, in light of that, we might want to question and might wonder, do believers in the Lord Jesus have reason to be optimistic even though trouble comes? I mean, do those who trust in Christ have reason to hope just as we sang about in that last song, do we have reason to hope even when all the circumstances that we face may appear stacked against us? Or as we consider the subject matter that we're studying, we might ask it this way, is there a reward 
for following Jesus, particularly when times of trouble and uncertainty come on. Well, I believe that the passage that we're going to look at in depth this morning from John chapter 14 certainly answers those questions in the affirmative. I think it will certainly tell us that we have every reason to have hope. It tells us why believers can be strong and why we can be hopeful and why we can be full of peace during difficult times. So if you've got your Bibles there or your tablets, whatever in front of you, follow along with me. And maybe, maybe you know these verses so well that you can even quote them. You can do that as well. But hear the word of God this morning. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, the New King James translates, and a better word for that is dwelling places. There are many rooms there. And if I were not so, I would have told you. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. Where I go, you know. And the way, you know. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that we have the opportunity to come into your very presence this morning to be able to open the scriptures that has been authored by your very Holy Spirit, which speaks to you and testifies to you and points us to you, our only hope, our only true and living hope, as we have just said. Now, I pray that you would do exactly what these words teach us this morning, and that is bring comfort to our troubled hearts in the midst of whatever the circumstances that we may be facing. Pray that you would point us to you and to you alone. And that we may leave this place changed by the power that comes only through Jesus Christ and Him alone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, some of the, these, these verses, this passage is really among the most beloved and quoted verses in the Bible. But to truly understand, I believe, just how comforting these verses are, uh, we need to understand them within the context of both when and where they were uttered. Um, and when we do, I think we will quickly realize that these words of our Lord were spoken to his disciples who were experiencing troubled hearts themselves. And, and they were going through a very difficult moment, a crisis of faith, we might even say. In fact, I want you to notice the first point that I'm giving you on your outline today. It, it's a one-word hook that I just want us to give to you for us to hang our thoughts on as we move through this passage. It alerts us to the fact that the disciples' troubled heart, the disciples' troubled heart, actually came because they were perplexed. In fact, that's the first word on your outline. It's, it's the word perplexity. Look back with me to kind of understand this back into chapter 13, because it's in chapter 13 that we find that Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room together. And they are there on the night before Jesus would ultimately be arrested and crucified. We read in the opening verses of chapter 13 that Jesus, Jesus came to his disciples and he, he, he pulled up a basin with 
water in it and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he got down on his hands and his knees and then he began to dip that water over and pour it over his disciples' feet and he washed his disciples' feet. And Peter is seeing this and he's watching as Jesus is making his way down through all of the disciples in this room and in his mind he cannot conceive of the concept that the Messiah would come and humble himself to the point of serving him by washing his feet. And there's great anxiety in Peter. And he says, Lord, you shall not wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, I don't wash your feet. You have my heart. There's great anxiety there at the very beginning of this chapter. But, but notice that, that that anxiety is ratcheted up even more as we move on. Because the next scene we read that the whole group is celebrating the Passover together. And they're celebrating this meal and it was in the context of celebrating this meal together that Jesus revealed that there was a traitor among them. There was one in that room who dipped with Jesus in the, in the cup that would ultimately go out and betray him to the religious authorities. And the disciples at this point don't really know who that is, but you can see that in verse 22. They looked at one another perplexed about who he spoke. They're questioning, is it I? Is it me? Am I the one? Is it you? But then from there, things continue to spiral downward because Jesus reveals that he's going away. And, and when he reveals that he's going away, it's as if everything that he had ever said to them before about come and follow me, he now reverses course and says, now you can't follow me because I'm going to some place that you can't go. And, and they looked at that as a negative thing. What they didn't realize is that Jesus was actually saying, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die there for your sins. And then I'm going to be put into a tomb and I'm going to rise again and I'm ultimately going to go back to the Father. And so everything he says there is positive, but the disciples don't understand it that way. All they know is that Jesus is saying, where you think that you're going to go is not with me. You, you're, you, you cannot follow me to where I'm going. And that change is really why this passage I brought it out for us to consider is because Jesus says, you can't follow me. But then there's the fourth reason that there's an anxiety here, and it's because Peter says, Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. I'll go anywhere you go. I'll go and follow you and lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, really, wait, Peter, will you lay down your life for my sake? Verse 38. Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow, and you have denied me three times. You see, here they found not only that they have one who was going to be a traitor in their midst, now they have one who was really the spokesman. He was the most, he was the most outgoing of the disciples with regard to his, his claims of, of, of being right in Jesus' corner. Big, strong, confident Peter is now told by Jesus that within the next few hours he will deny the Lord Jesus. All of that is right there in chapter 13. And when we consider it, we, we consider everything that's revealed to us there, from the perspective of the disciples, we can understand why their hearts were troubled. Their paradigm from Jesus as the Messiah had been challenged. It had been revealed to them that there was a betrayer among them. Jesus had told them that he was going to leave them and they did not follow him wherever he was going. And Peter, their unofficial spokesman, had been told that he would deny the Lord. And I want you to consider just how stunning and how perplexing of an impact that would have upon the disciples. And I would suggest to you that if we had been there with them in that upper room, we too would have experienced trouble. Here's the point of what we should understand. Frequently, 
there will come about things in life that will perplex us and cause us to As I mentioned earlier, those things may find their origin in all sorts of areas. The fact is, whenever those perplexing circumstances come, whatever they may be, we realize that following Jesus does not keep us from trouble. In fact, I would say this to you, a Pollyanna Christianity that pretends that there are no troubles for believers out there simply is not a realistic scenario at all. And I find it to be very unhelpful for believers. Nothing is gained by minimizing or ignoring the problems that we face. Nevertheless, I want you to notice that in these verses that I read from earlier from chapter 14, Jesus speaks directly to the perplexity that his disciples are facing. And he tells them that even though there may be ample reasons to be troubled, there is even greater reason not to allow that trouble to overcome and to overwhelm. Therefore, notice for you the next slope that you have provided for you on your outline. Notice that Jesus directs his disciples away from their perplexity. He directs them toward peace. The first verse of our text opens up this way. Let not your heart be troubled. It's actually a command in the Greek language. It's, a, it, it's an imperative, which the NIV translates very well. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. The word translated trouble here is the, is the same word that's often used to describe what happens when a storm comes down. We, we've, we've talked about this before. When a storm would come along the, yeah, the Sea of Galilee, it would stir the waters up, the wind would begin to, to roar, and it would cause the waves to rise, and, and the, the lake, the, the sea there would foment, and it would become agitated, and it would roll and, and roll upon itself, much like, much like what happens with us oftentimes when trouble comes our way. We become agitated, our, our inner heart just becomes rolled on top of itself, and our stomach becomes knotted up, and our mind just goes crazy with ample opportunities and possibilities of all the bad things that can happen. And Jesus says, don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen within your heart. In fact, just a few verses later, down in verse 27 of John chapter 14, you hear how exactly what, what the opposite of a troubled heart is. Jesus says in verse 27 of John 14, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. And then you hear these same words again. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. You see, that's the opposite of what a troubled heart is. It's a heart that's not afraid. It's a heart that's not overwhelmed by the troubles that it's going through. It's a heart that is resting in the peace that Jesus provides. Not the peace that the world tells you, but it's the peace that he gives you. Now, I think if we actually... Link verse 1 of John 14 to verse 27 of John 14, then I believe we can clearly see the reward. We can see the benefit. We can see the profit that comes our way when we follow Jesus. When we place our faith and our confidence and our trust completely and solely in Jesus, then I believe that he will provide us with peace. Even when everything around us is falling apart. In fact, that's precisely what Jesus says at the end of verse 1. Did you notice that? He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Amen. Now, I'm not going to get us lost in grammatical weeds here. But I do want you to understand that there are a couple of ways to understand what Jesus says here. 
and I'm going to tell you the way that I believe we need to interpret what Jesus says. In the Greek language, these two phrases, believe in God, believe also in me, can legitimately be translated, number one, as an indicative statement. You can say, I can say to you, I'm, I wear a blue jacket. That's an indicative statement. It's telling you what is the case. It's not making a statement about what needs to be done. It's just stating a fact. Both of these phrases could be stated that way. You believe in God. You believe also in me. Contextually, I don't think that those make as much sense if you look at them both as just indicative statements. The other way that the, the, the statements could be understood as, as, is as imperative statements or commands. You wear a blue jacket. That is a command. I can say it in such a way that it is a, it's an imperative, something that you must do. So both statements could be translated that way. You must believe in God. You must believe in me. Some have taken in those, those statements to, to go that way. So both of them imperative. I believe that the New King James actually gets the translation as close to the way Jesus would have wanted it understood as we can get. That it's actually one, one indicative statement, one imperative statement. The indicative statement says, look, guys, you believe in God. You believe in the one who created everything. You believe in the sovereign God that made everything that's seen and unseen, the maker of heaven and earth. Your confidence is in the sovereign God of heaven. But in light of that, you must believe in me. If you believe in him, you need to believe in me. An indicative statement followed by an imperative statement. And here's the reason why I think that is so important. Because Jesus said you believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't miss the word also. I would say to you it is one of the most important words that you will find in this entire passage. Because that word also in verse 1 brings out the absolute deity of Christ in an unmistakable manner. Martin Luther has said it this way. He has written that based upon what Jesus says here, Christ himself testifies that he is equal with God Almighty because he tells us that we must believe in him even as we believe in the Father. And if we are we're not if he, if he were not true God with the Father, this faith that Jesus commands his disciples to have would be a false and idolatrous faith. So Jesus is very clearly linking himself with God as being God, as being co-equal with the Father. So thus far, we've come to realize that based on the context of chapter 13, the disciples had every reason to be perplexed and troubled, particularly in light of the fact that the one whom they had left all to follow, had now told them that he was going away and where he was going, they could not come. And yet here in chapter 14, Jesus goes on telling that though they are perplexed, there is even greater reason for them to experience peace. Peace that is available to them through their firm confidence and faith in him as God. And then what I want you to notice is that the peace that Jesus offers, even amidst the perplexity of his revelation that he's going away, Jesus tells them that he's going away for a purpose. There's a reason that he's going away. And he's leaving them with, with, with to, to will, will actually serve a great uh, something for them that will accomplish something for them that they could not even comprehend. And therefore, notice the next hook on your outline is a two-word hook this time. Jesus tells them in verse 2 about a prepared place. A prepared place. Notice that Jesus introduces the concept of heaven here. 
You know, in the scriptures, heaven is referred to in a number of ways. It's a, a couple of writers talk about heaven is sometimes referred to as a country because of its vast nature. Sometimes it's referred to as a city because it's talking about the large number of inhabitants that will be there. Heaven sometimes is talked about as a kingdom, which would refer to the rule and the reign of Christ and the orderliness that heaven will, will have. And then sometimes we talk about heaven with regard to it being paradise, and I think that's in reference to how beautiful it's going to be and the joys and the, the excitement that we'll experience in the end. But here Jesus uses a different phrase. He uses the phrase, my father's house, when he talks about heaven. Um, I think to use such a reference points to a place where those who follow him will experience love. And they will experience welcome and they will, they will experience safety. Such a place like that, a place where you are loved and where you're welcome and you know you're safe, that, that sounds a lot like home, doesn't it? It sounds, it sounds exactly like a place that we would talk to, talk about as being, I, I want to go home. I want to go to a place where I know that I'm loved. I want to go to a place where I know that I'm always going to be received. I want to go to a place where I know that no matter what I do, when I lay my head down tonight, I'm safe. And I believe that's exactly why Jesus uses that phrase of my father's house here. He's speaking of home for those of us who are believers. And there's here's something that we need to consider. You see, for the believer. For those who have committed their lives to following Christ, this world is not our home. Amen. As believers, the truth is that we are strangers in a strange land. That's not just a phrase that's out there. It's, it's the literal truth. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that for believers, our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven, where we await and eagerly for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and return and bring us to himself. Listen, the, I'm convinced that the closer that we come to following Christ, the more that his life begins to impact the image of our life, and the more like him we become, the more strange this land will appear and seem to us. The less like home this place will be. So I believe that Jesus is alerting his disciples about a, about a home that he is going. And notice what he says, there in my father's house are many, are many dwelling places, there are many rooms. Uh, unfortunately, the, 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 the word mansions there has often been taken to understand that we're all going to still live in, in various houses constructed independently in the little silos that we're all going to live in. But I think the Jewish understanding would have would have understood exactly how this would have been. The disciples didn't have that misinterpretation of it. You see, for a Jewish man, when, when his son would go off and take a bride, he would take a bride and bring him back to his father's house. And that Jewish father would, would knock out a wall and he would expand his house into another dwelling place so that his son and daughter-in-law and future grandchildren could come and live there. And if he had another son, you know what he did to the other side of the house? He knocked that wall out. And he began to build that room. And, and sometimes even in, 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 in uh, Israel today, they actually go up. They build different floors. Then they all continue to live under the same roof together. And I think the disciples would have completely understood that that's what Jesus was saying here. He's saying that in his father's house, he will just continue to add more and more rooms and more and more dwelling places for his children to come and live with him. And it will be a place of ample room and it, they will, everyone will be able to abide in it together and enjoy him. And I couldn't help but think about it as I was reflecting on this. That may challenge some of us. 
I mean, the thought of living with our parents for eternity, the thought of our parents living with us for eternity, the thought of our children coming back home and living with us for eternity. Here's what I want you to know. In heaven, there will be no strained relationship. In heaven, there will be no dysfunction. In heaven, everything will be set right. And God the Father has said, this is home for you, child. And I've got a place for you. And listen, as Warren Wiersbe has said, since heaven is the Father's house, it must be a place of love. And it must be a place of joy. When the Apostle John tried to describe heaven later in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, you know, he almost ran out of symbols to compare it to. He, he used every positive and wonderful and thing that he could think of. And then he said, that's still not enough. And so then he had to revert to tell us what was not going to be in heaven. And so he began to say, look, there's not going to be any more death there. And there's not going to be more crying there. And there's going to be no more sorrow there. And no more pain. And there's no more night there. In other words, heaven is going to be a wonderful home that all of us, whether we realize it or not, are already beginning to yearn for. Amen. And we will enjoy it forever. Notice that Jesus goes on to link his imminent departure with his going to prepare a place for not only his disciples, but for all who will follow him and trust him to be their Savior and Lord. The question is, what did Jesus mean by the fact that he was going to prepare such a place? And you might be surprised that commentators are kind of all over the board a little bit with exactly how to interpret what Jesus said. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Here's where I, here's where I stand. I understand that by his death on the cross, by his resurrection from the grave, and by his ascension to the Father, that Jesus procured the right for every believing sinner to enter heaven. Not on the basis of anything that they had done themselves, but solely based upon what he had done for them. Jesus Christ was going to prepare a place for them the very next day when he was stretched out on a Roman cross. And he was going to prepare the place for them because he was going to rise bodily from the grave. And he was going to prepare a place for them because he was ascending back to the Heavenly Father where he would wait for the moment for the right time to come and receive them back to himself. And I believe all of that was necessary to secure for his people a welcome and a permanent place in heaven. So, so the peace that Jesus supplies to those who may be perplexed by the troubles of this life is grounded in the fact that he has gone to prepare a place for us. And then also notice this, because he has said he's going to prepare a place for us, then we know notice next, the fourth point here on your outline is this, there's a promise that's attached to that. A promise is attached. Jesus says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to send for somebody to come get you. He says, I'm coming. I'm going to come and get you. Notice also, he didn't say, I'm going to take you. He says, I'm going to receive you. Get your mind right now. Jesus is going, I'm coming physically to get you. And you will then come with me back to the place that I have prepared for you, where I will receive you into your eternal home. Amen. What a promise that is from the very lips of our Savior. 
And listen, it was designed to bring comfort to those first disciples, and it's designed to bring comfort to us. In fact, this is what I would say. Not only is John 14 one of those passages that you often hear read in a funeral, at a graveside service, most likely you will often hear another passage written by the Apostle Paul, who picks up on exactly what Jesus says here in John 14. And at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, he says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then he adds this phrase, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you see how the the peace, the comfort that comes from knowing that Jesus Christ, he's not somewhere distant from us that we may never see him again. No, he is that I'm coming back and I'm going to receive you to myself. There's comfort in that. So Jesus has called his disciples to trade their perplexity for peace by calling them to, to faith in him and assuring them that he has gone to prepare a place for them. And then he promises that he will come again and receive them to himself. And then he makes the statement in verse 4, where I go, you know the way. Now, in the context, Jesus has given every bit of information that we need to be able to interpret what he says here. But I'm like Thomas sometimes. Because Thomas goes, wait a minute, time out, Jesus. Slow down. We have no idea where you're going. And if we don't know where you're going, how in the world can you tell us that we know the way to get you see, Thomas was the same guy who later in John chapter 20, when his fellow disciples said, we have seen the Lord after the resurrection. Thomas wasn't with him when he first saw it. He said, I'm not going to believe you've seen him until I can put my finger in his side and see the fingerprints and touch his hands. Thomas was one that needed to see physical things. He, and he needed empirical data in order to understand faith. Jesus says, look, Thomas, you don't completely understand what I'm saying. And you fail to grasp the spiritual implications of what I've just communicated. And so in response to Thomas's request for clarification, Jesus utters some of his most famous words. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And it's this statement from Jesus that leads us to the last hook of this passage. When Jesus tells them that he is the prescribed path. Jesus is the prescribed path. And what I mean by prescribed path is simply that Jesus is making a very exclusive claim to be the only way anyone can ever be reconciled with the Father. There are other statements that confirm this in the Scriptures. Jesus in another I am statement in John chapter 10 verse 9 says, I am the door. He didn't say I was one of the doors. He says, I am the door. And then he says this, anyone who enters by me, he will be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There we see that Luke is writing and he says there is salvation in no other name for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved except the name Jesus Christ. That's it. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and he's reminding him there there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. He didn't say there were multiple mediators. He said there was one mediator and then he identified who that mediator was Jesus Christ. From these and other passages, we recognize that God has provided a road. He has provided a way. 
He has provided a path, which is the way of redemption. And it was the plan for all eternity that such a path would come only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, each of these statements that Jesus makes here in verse 6, they're instructed in their own right. We can spend the rest of the afternoon right there on verse 6. Calm down. We will not. But I want you to know, when he says, I am the way, Jesus is saying very clearly that there is, he alone is the only span that, that can come between the distance between God and man. When he says that he is the truth, he's not declaring that he's just come to, to give them truth. He's saying that he is the revelation of truth about God. He himself is the truth. When he says that he is the life, he is declaring that he is the great emancipator from death. That those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, that they will be brought from death to life through that faith. That is what he means. And I would say to you that based upon the context... When, when Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, the life, really these are not three independent statements, but they're actually causality. He's telling them, I am the way because I am the truth. I am the way because I am the life. I'm the way because I am the only true manifestation of the revelation of the Father. I'm the way because I alone have the power to bring eternal life. It's that exclusivity of Jesus as the prescribed path that makes perfectly clear what he says next. Unequivocally clear, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now you may be wondering, how is that supposed to comfort me? How is that supposed to bring me peace during troubled times? I want you to consider that Jesus did not say that he was a way. He did not say he was a good teacher or a good guy or a good example. Listen, if that's all that Jesus was, you and I have every reason to be troubled. You and I have every reason to succumb and to be overwhelmed by the things that are always out there vying for our attention. If Jesus is not the perfect, sinless Son of God who willingly laid down his life to pay the price for our sins and to provide the way by which we can be reconciled to God, then you and I have no hope our only hope is if he did something for us that we could never be able to do for ourselves. Our only hope lies in if he has the ability to satisfy God's righteous wrath against our sin by suffering our punishment in our place. Amen. And I want you to know that was God's plan all along that Jesus Christ, his son, the second person of the Trinity, would take on my sin on the cross so that I might come to the Father through him and through him alone. And the same way that it happens for me is the same way that it can happen for you. And the same way that it will happen for anyone. There is no other way. Listen, for folks just like us, like Peter, like Thomas, like every other man, woman, boy, and girl who's ever embarked upon the, 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 the set out in their life to follow Jesus, we know this, that even on our best day, we come up short. Even on our best day, we still fail. Even on our best day of trying to follow Christ, we still know that we are sinners. And you know what that means? All of us on our best day will still inherit the same thing that the rest of us would. We deserve nothing but eternal death. But Jesus Christ, he was the perfect, sinless son of God, has done for us what we could not do. And I want you to know, whenever we think about our own failures and our own trouble, it might perplex us. Jesus says you can have not as the world gives you peace, but it's the peace that I bring to you. And we can be comforted and assured that Jesus will never fail.
He never has and he never will. And as the prescribed path, the exclusive way to the Father, we who have placed our faith in him and follow him can be confident that he will be us. And all of this then really brings us back to where we kind of started this morning. If we're wanting to try to figure out, is there a reason to have hope in troubled times? I think he's given us ample reason. Is there, is there a reward that we can look for that, that might be given to those who are followers of Christ? I think he has very much told us exactly what that reward is. And all of that leads me to my sermon in the sentence, which I will readily tell you up front before I prepare it around. So I'm going to take a sip, and we'll take a sip first. And then go ahead. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Even in troubled times, those who trust in and follow Jesus can experience peace because of the assurance that he is preparing their heavenly home, promises to return and receive them to himself, and reconciles them with the Father exclusively by his own work. Amen. Here's the thing. All of that conclusion then forces us to ask ourselves some pretty deep questions. Really, all those questions kind of come down to what? Do you have peace? Do you have peace? If you don't, then it is possible that the reason that you do not have peace in your heart this morning, even amidst the trouble that you're facing, is because you have never come to the place where you have truly come before Christ and humbled yourself before him and placed your trust in him. Perhaps you don't have peace because you don't have Christ. You see that they go together. You can't have one without the other. And so perhaps it is that you have never come to the point where you have truly recognized your sin and that you have come before the Lord Jesus humbly confessing that sin and asking him to be your Lord and your Savior. What I want you to know is based upon the authority of God's word, Jesus says, all who will come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And so you can come to him. The Holy Spirit may be opening your heart right now to that truth. Go, I want that peace that he's speaking of right here. Here's how that happens. You confess your sins to him and then you place your trust in him and you turn loose of all the other things that you've been holding on to in your life. And God promises that by, but because he is the way, the truth, and the life, he will accept you into heaven because of what Jesus has done. If you do not do that, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that you will have absolutely no hope. Because the Bible clearly tells us that all of us are sinners and because we are sinners, we have incur upon ourselves the weight of our sin and we will bear that weight for eternity if we are not saved by the blood of Christ. Amen. So maybe you don't have peace this morning because you've never trusted in Jesus. Maybe you have trusted in Christ but what you have come to realize is, is that you don't have peace. Maybe because the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind some areas of your life where you refuse to allow Him to be Lord. You may be a believer in Christ, but if you're honest, you're not truly following him. You're not placing one foot in front of the other, trying to live your life as the way that he would prescribe for you. And that's what I want you to know. Sometimes, sometimes trouble comes into our lives. Not always. Not every bit of trouble comes this way. But sometimes trouble will come into our life because the Lord wants to get our attention. And as he has done in my life numerous times, he stirs up the water in my life so that he can bring me back to 
I don't know what the circumstances that you face is going on. I don't know what trouble may await you when you walk out these doors. But I do know this. Jesus himself says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions and many rooms, many perfect places. If you are not so, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, 